Well, good morning. That's nice. Thank you. You know, it was about three years ago that Stephen Curtis Chapman stood right here and did a full concert, and it was amazing. How many of you were at that Stephen Curtis Chapman concert? Yeah, I know. And I, you clap. I'm, I'm really excited that at some point we're going to be able to start having concerts again. I mean, that's, that's really cool. But I got to tell you that as I prepared to talk about this parable this morning, I've had some Stephen Curtis Chapman music running around in my head, and I didn't want you to miss out. In fact, I wanted to plant it in your brain, too, so that you were stuck with these songs as much as I've been the last few days. And so here's just a snippet of one of the songs that's been in my head. Go ahead. Do you know it? Imagine this, I get a phone call from Regis. It says, do you want to be a millionaire? They put me on the show and I went with two lifelines to spare. And I picture this, I act like nothing ever happened. And bury all the money in a coffee can. Okay, that's enough. Um, actually, I'd love to listen to the whole song, but that's how long we can listen to before YouTube shuts us off. Right? So, so we put in what we could put in. Um, get that lyric, though, uh, that Stephen Curtis Chapman and Jeff Moore wrote. I act like nothing ever happened. I bury all the money in a coffee can. I mean, that's ludicrous. Nobody would win a million dollars and then bury it in the backyard. And yet, the parable we're looking at today, somebody does exactly that. And so my hope is that it, we, as we look at a really familiar parable, that it will still be fresh and new. And that maybe God's got something to say to us today that is for right now. Let me pray for us as we start. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing us here, giving us the freedom and the opportunity to worship you and to learn from your word. And I just pray that you would speak to us, that this message would be your Holy Spirit's intended message for the, for the hearts and the minds that are here this morning. And I pray that you will be blessed and that the praise will all go to you in your glorious name, amen. All right, I wanna start with um, a word study. I've got a word for you. The word is interadventual, interadventual. Now, how many of you came in knowing the word interadventual? Okay, there's one. Anyone? What? Okay. Two services, one person knew the word interadventional. Bravo, way to go. Okay, wait, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't know it. Oh, you were in the first service. <laughs> that counts. Good job. Um, it also is not a valid words with friends word, which is probably good for me because then I would have a new life goal to play interadventional. Um, if you look in the middle of this word, though, you'll see the word advent. And so that's more familiar. How many of you know the word advent? What do you think of when you hear the word advent? Christmas. Yeah. Um, actually, in the Christian church, the four weeks before Christmas are, are talked about as advent. And it comes from a Latin word. This is so out of my depth to do, like, linguistics and Latin words. But it comes from a Latin word, ad venire 
which literally means add to, venere come, to come. And in use, even before Christ, advent in Latin or advenere was used to talk about an anticipated coming of a monarch, a king or a queen, something that was exciting that they were looking forward to. And that makes sense that we would talk about it in Christmas and say, you know what, advenere, advent, we're looking forward to at least celebrating the coming of Christ at Christmas. And so it, it, is, it, it makes all the sense of the world that we talk about it at Christmas. Advenere is also the root for another English word, adventure. And advent and adventure are connected because they're both surrounded by anticipation and excitement and a little bit of uncertainty. And so when we go on an adventure, we anticipate it, we're excited about it, we're not sure about what's going to come. And this morning I want to talk about Advent and adventure. And since we started with Stephen Curtis Chapman and we're, we're talking about adventure, then you know what song is on my mind now. It's the great adventure. Saddle up your horses. We've got a trail to blaze, right? Um, I promised my kids I wouldn't sing this one even though it is Father's Day. But I do want you to get at least a couple lyrics from this because they really lock into where we're going this morning. In The Great Adventure, Stephen Curtis Chapman says, come on, get ready for the ride of your life. Let's leave long-faced religion in the cloud of dust behind and discover the new horizons that are waiting to be explored. And get this, this is what we were created for. God created us for adventure. I love it in the song. I think I, I'm gonna see it in the words that we look at in scripture today. So back to interadventional. Adventual. I knew I would. Okay. Interadventual is an adverb. That's what the UAL at the end of it is for. And it modifies a time period. So we're going to talk about an interadventual period. And it is inter between two advents. The first advent is Christ coming at Christmas. And the second advent is Christ's second coming still in the future. Got it? Make sense? Good. Because as we turn to scripture, we're going to see that this is just starting to make sense to the disciples. It's just dawning on them here in the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry that they're about to live in an interadventual period. Jesus is about to leave them. He's been teaching more and more clearly about his, his crucifixion and about him going back to heaven and, and leaving them on earth in anticipation of the end of the age and his second coming, interadventual. And it's a good passage of scripture for us to study because you and I also live in this period between advents. And so as we, as we study the scripture, we find that the disciples are doing what they've, they've learned to do. They're kind of getting better at going straight to the source. And they get alone with Jesus and they ask him this question. We find it in Matthew 24, verse 3. It says, later Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives and his disciples came to him privately and said, tell us when this is all gonna happen. I mean, what sign will signal your return and the end of the world? And Jesus uses the next two chapters of Matthew to answer that question. And that's where we're gonna be this morning. Um, he doesn't leave them hanging. He gives them very clear answers. The first thing he does is give them 
a long list of things that will describe what that period between his ascension and his second coming will look like. And, and I've got to tell you, it doesn't look very good. Jesus says that the disciples will, will face false witnesses and false prophets and deceptive people who even claim to be the Messiah returning. He says, don't listen to them. He says that those who follow Christ are going to be arrested, they're going to be persecuted, and they're even going to be killed. He said that they'll be hated around the world for following Jesus. That sin will be rampant everywhere, and many will turn away from Jesus and then betray and hate each other. And finally, that people will increasingly become cold and loveless. That's how Jesus describes that time leading up to his second coming, and it all sounds both horrible and unfortunately, a little too familiar. But then, in verses 13 and 14 in chapter 24, Jesus offers some light in the midst of this darkness. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. All the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. Jesus tells them that the, the, his coming will be a surprise. It'll be sudden, kind of like a, a robber breaking into a house. And then he says, this is what it's going to look like. At the last, and then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet. And they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and from heaven. He will gather his chosen ones from all over the world. After telling the disciples this, Jesus moves on to answer a question that they didn't ask, or at least it's not recorded in Matthew's gospel, but it had to be on their mind. And that is, okay, Jesus, if this is all gonna happen and that we're gonna live in this period where all of these bad things are going to be around us, how should we live? What should we do? And so that's what we find in Matthew 25, is that Jesus is going to tell two parables to describe how to live in the midst of this suffering and oppression. The first one is about ten bridesmaids. And Jesus, in the parable, describes a wedding. He says that there is excitement and anticipation and a little bit of uncertainty around this wedding. And the uncertainty is that they don't know when the bridegroom is going to show up. And so you got 10 bridesmaids all waiting for the bridegroom to show up. Five of them are described as wise bridesmaids, and five are described as foolish bridesmaids. Just a thought for my daughter as she's planning a wedding someday. We don't need 10 bridesmaids, okay? That's too many. Um, especially five foolish ones. We don't need five foolish ones. Um, the wise bridesmaids were ones that came prepared to wait out the coming of the bridegroom. Whereas the foolish bridesmaids showed up, but they didn't have the preparation, they weren't ready. And so in the parable, Jesus says that the wise bridesmaids, because they were prepared, because they were watchful, they're there when the bridegroom comes and they go ushered into the wedding to celebrate and the foolish bridesmaids had left to go get their preparation in order that they should have done before and they missed out. 
And you know that the Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. And so the application is pretty straightforward. In fact, Jesus gives it to us um, pretty, pretty clearly in verse 13 when he says, after telling that parable, so you too must keep watch. For you do not know the day or the hour of my return. The message out of that first parable of the 10 bridesmaids is be watchful. Then Jesus goes on to tell a second parable, and this is where we're gonna spend most of our time this morning. And this parable also illustrates how do we live between the advents? Now, my Bible has it under the heading, the parable of the three servants. And your Bible might have it called the parable of the bags of gold or the parable of the talents. I grew up hearing it as the parable of the talents. Um, Here's what the Bible says, beginning in Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. Two quick notes. First, I don't know. I don't know why some passages call, or some translations call it bags of silver, others call it bags of gold, and still others call it talents. Um, But it doesn't matter what you call it, it's clear that this is a lot of money. In fact, a talent was the word for the amount of money that a laborer would earn in 20 years. So the minimum wage in Missouri right now is $10.30 an hour. If you work 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year for 20 years, that adds up to over $400,000. That's one bag, one talent. And so the amount of money that Jesus uses in his parable to illustrate what the master is entrusting the servants with is huge, okay? Um, The second note is how the master divided the money. It says that he divided it in proportion to their abilities. He knew the servants and he entrusted them with significant responsibilities according to what he knew they were capable of doing. So put yourself in the story. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, I know you, I trust you, I'm gonna give you hundreds of thousands of dollars to oversee. I'll be back at some point, so until then, just do what you see as fit. Can you feel the adventure in that? I mean, can you feel both the anticipation and the excitement and the uncertainty? What are you gonna do if somebody says, here's a bucket of money, I'll be back, you let me know what you did with it. That's adventure. If somebody gave you that opportunity, you'd have a choice to make. I mean, you could either, as Stephen Curtis Chapman says, saddle up your horses and get on with the adventure, or you could reach for the coffee can and the shovel. And Jesus is gonna tell in this parable how each of those approaches turns out. So let's go back to the word. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and he earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more, but the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. 
The servant to whom he had entrusted five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, $2 million, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. And the master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Okay, so far, so good. Um, the first two servants did what the master expected. They embraced the adventure. They saddled up their horses. They worked hard over a long period of time, and they were praised and they were rewarded by the master. The praise is the familiar phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. And the reward is both greater responsibility and then a celebration with the master. So rejoicing all around. But how did the coffee can strategy turn out? Then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. Now, Jesus makes clear in telling the story that the third servant did not do what the master intended him to do. The master calls him wicked and lazy. And he takes the bag of silver and he brushes the dirt off of it and he gives it to the first servant. But what about that servant's claim that the master is harsh and that he harvests crops he didn't plant? What do we make of that? What about the master saying, well, if you knew that I was like that, why didn't you at least put the money in the bank? Um, as I studied, I found the Believer's Bible commentary to be helpful. Um, in verse 26, this is the Believer's Bible commentary, the master is not agreeing with the charges against him. Rather, he's saying, if that's the kind of master you thought I am, all the more reason to have put the talent to work. Your words condemn, not excuse you. It's as if verse 26, where the master says, hey, you knew this, um, should have air quotes around the new. And it should sound like, if you knew that I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, then why didn't you deposit the money in the bank? So Jesus finishes this parable by plainly stating the principle that the disciples are supposed to understand from the story. To those who use well what they're given, even more will be given. And they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant out into outer darkness where there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. That's it. That's the parable. Um, it's a direct answer from Jesus to the disciples' questions about his second coming and the end of the age. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is to look at this parable and ask what it means for us today as we live in an interadventual period. And there are three specific questions that I want to answer. The first 
is, okay, what has God entrusted to us? The second, how do we sometimes behave like the third servant, the unfaithful servant? In other words, what are our coffee can moments? And then the third is, okay, how should we live individually and as a church in these days between the Advents? All right, what has God entrusted to us? Well, he's God, God's entrusted a lot to us. In fact, um, for most of us, he hasn't entrusted bags of gold and silver or millions of dollars. If he has, then this parable may be more applicable literally to you. And I'm glad you're here. Um, but he has entrusted us with a lot. In fact, we could just say, well, he's entrusted us with everything that's good because James says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father in heaven, right? But I want to look at three specific categories of things that God has entrusted to us that we're the servants responsible for using. The first is God has prepared good works for you and I to do. He entrusts those good works to us. In Ephesians 4, verse 10, Paul says, we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We've been given assignments from God, work that he's prepared in advance and intended for us to do. The second thing that God entrusts with us comes through the form of spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit. And throughout the New Testament, there are discussions about how the Holy Spirit gives each of us spiritual gifts and grows in us spiritual fruit. One place is in Galatians where Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. He says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then in 2 Corinthians, nope, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. There's the purpose of the gifts. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another and to someone else. The one Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. And still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is only the one and only Spirit who distributes all of these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. So don't, don't miss that last phrase. The Holy Spirit alone decides which gift each person should receive. And I think that that's according to our abilities. He gives those gifts, he gives that fruit so that we can do the works that he's prepared for us. So God gives us work to do, God gives us fruit and spiritual gifts. Third and most importantly, God gives us himself. He entrusts us to be dwelling places for the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in Luke 11, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So imagine God coming to you and saying, I know you and I know what you're capable of. I created you after all. And I'm entrusting you with my love. I'm entrusting you with the joy that I bring, a peace that passes understanding, and also patience and kindness and goodness and all the rest. Along with these wonderful things, I'm giving you good works that I've prepared for you to do. And I give you specific spiritual gifts that are suitable to the works that I've prepared for you. And finally, and most importantly, I give you myself to be with you and within you forever. That's so much more than the servants were entrusted with in this parable. It's more than a few bags of silver or a few million dollars. It's an invitation to an amazing adventure. An adventure that you and I were created for. And yet, too often we reach for the coffee can and the shovel. So I wanna, I wanna just explore a little bit what causes us to sometimes bury the treasures instead of applying them to the work that God has given us. And I think we can find at least three things in the story of the unfaithful servant that draw parallels to where we sometimes do that. The first obstacle for the unfaithful servant was fear and some accompanying self-preservation. He says to the master, I was afraid of your response if I failed, so I buried the money so that I wouldn't get in trouble. Now, I think fear is natural. Let me rephrase that. I know fear is natural. I know self-preservation is natural. In the face of God standing before you and saying, I have this work for you to do and I want you to do it, the person who's not afraid or concerned about what they might lose or what it might cost them is, is the unnatural one, I think. In his book, Run With the Horses, about the life of Jeremiah, Eugene Peterson does a great job of, of describing our tendency to respond in fear when we're faced with a call of God. He says, we are practiced in pleading inadequacy in order to avoid living at the best that God calls us to. How tired the excuses sound. I'm only a youth, I'm only a housewife, I'm only a layman, I'm only a poor preacher, I only have an eighth grade education, I don't have enough time, I don't have enough training, I don't have enough confidence, or as Moses said directly to God, oh Lord, I'm not very good with words, I've never been, and I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Ironically, I actually stumbled over that line as I was reading it in the first service, but I got through it this time. Eugene Peterson says, too much is being asked of us. We cannot cope. We cannot manage. So often, the anticipation turns into fear. The excitement turns into anxiety and the uncertainty turns into paralysis. And you and I become overwhelmed with the possibilities. As Peterson says, we cannot cope, we cannot manage. My purpose this morning, and I'm pretty confident it's God's purpose as well, is to invite each of us to take the next step. 
to understand what God has put before us and what he's put in us, and then to move forward and do that. It is not to overwhelm you with possibilities or cause shame over past inaction. God's invitation doesn't go away for that great adventure. In fact, in the parable, there's a great theme of the master rewarding the action with more opportunity and with celebration. That's what Jesus wants for us. The second way that we can be like the unfaithful servant is if we have a distorted view of God. In the parable, the servant has a distorted view of the master, and that becomes an obstacle to him living out what the master's calling him to do. That servant believed, or at least he said he believed, that the master was a harsh and dishonest master. He accused him to his face of harvesting crops he didn't plant and gathering crops he didn't cultivate. The wrong view of the master led the servant to do the wrong things and to receive dismissal and banishment. So like the servant, if, if we have the wrong view of God, then we're not likely to see what he's calling us to do and we're even less likely to accomplish it. God has revealed himself to us in his creation. He's told us about himself in scripture and he's shown us himself in Jesus Christ. We don't study the Bible in order to know more about the Bible. We study the Bible in order to know the master more fully and completely because that's part of being able to, to please him. The third way that we can be like the unfaithful servant is when we limit God by boundaries that we create. The third obstacle that I see in the unfaithful servant is something that jumped out at me as I was reading this passage and then reading in John chapter four. And as soon as I saw it, I kept coming back to it. Here it is. The servant created boundaries to the master's domain and then he refused to cross them. By saying the master was harvesting crops where he didn't plant and gathering crops where he didn't cultivate, the unfaithful servant was saying that the master was wrongly crossing boundaries and working outside of his pro proper domain. And we've already seen that the accusations that the servant's making about the master don't match the character of the master in the parable. I think sometimes you and I do the same thing. We set boundaries. Here's some examples. I can't say anything at school because it's a public school. I can't talk about faith at work or I'll offend people and get in trouble. I can't go to that neighborhood, I can't go to that city or that state or that country because I'm different than they are and they won't listen. I'll give 10% because that's all God asks. I could never work with junior hires or toddlers or babies. I can't harvest there because I didn't plant those seeds. My question this morning is, what boundaries do you create? Where do you say, God, I'll do this much, but I won't do that? I think the equation looks like fear and self-preservation when combined with a wrong view of God result in artificial boundaries. And those boundaries keep us from doing what God's called us to do. I wonder if the disciples made the connection. I wonder if as Jesus was teaching them about planting and harvesting and 
the accusations against the master, I wonder if their minds went back to earlier teaching from Jesus. You see, back in chapter four of John, after Jesus had met with the Samaritan woman at the well, the disciples come in and he starts teaching them about his purpose for their lives. Here's what he says in John chapter four. You know the saying, four months before plant, four months between planting and the harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Jesus can say, I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant, because he has authority over all of creation, no boundaries. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The work God gives us to do may cross the boundaries that you and I have created for ourselves. That doesn't mean that the sovereign Christ doesn't cry, mine. As we finish up, I want to encourage you with three applications of this passage. First, it's clear that God has equipped you and God has equipped me for the work that he's given us to do. He gives us spiritual fruit. He gives us spiritual gifts. He gives us the Holy Spirit. But I want you to remember how Jesus described this period between the Advents. Wars, false prophets, persecution. It was in the midst of this oppression that Jesus told these parables about being watchful and being faithful servants of God. And so when we find ourselves in the midst of difficult challenges and oppression and struggles, I hope that you'll think back to this passage and let it remind you that God has given you these circumstances in proportion to your abilities. And sometimes, especially when the circumstances are incredibly overwhelming, it feels like God's got a pretty high estimate of our abilities. But isn't it amazing that the God who created you and equips you has so much confidence in you? Together with him, we can overcome. The truth is that he will give you all you need to be faithful to him through whatever you're facing. Second, I know that some of you are wondering what work God wants you to do. And some of us can spend a lot of time looking for a divine declaration of our assignment. But I want to suggest this morning that it's not maybe that hard. We saw earlier that Jesus told the disciples that the fruit that they were to harvest was bringing people to eternal life in him. Jesus cares about the lost so much, and it's clear that our role is to share the gospel with them. Jesus is also clear about the work that we are to be doing in this interadventual period. In fact, he finishes answering the disciples' questions about the end of the age and his second coming by describing the final judgment. And in this judgment, 
Jesus praises the righteous ones for feeding him when he was hungry, for giving him something to drink when he was thirsty, for inviting them into their home as a stranger. He praises them for clothing him when he was naked, caring for him when he was sick, and visiting him when he was in prison. And the righteous tell Jesus the judge, wait a minute, we don't remember doing any of that for you. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. When you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Isn't it clear that the work God equips us to do is boldly sharing his gospel and lovingly caring for those in need? So what's the next step for you? Where do you need to invest what God has entrusted to you to accomplish the work that he's given you to do? Finally, one more, one more observation. There's one more gift that Jesus entrusts to us and that is each other. Um, he gives us each other to do this work. It is not a soul adventure. It's one that we go together in. And so this message is not just a challenge for you or a challenge for me as individuals, but it's a challenge for the whole church. We together are equipped and instructed to do God's work. So what does it mean to be a faithful congregation? It means being a people of prayer. It means coming together to collectively seek God in fresh and new ways, and to listen for his direction. And I hope that we're doing that here at First Free. It means living and serving on mission, working together to share the gospel and to care for other people's needs. It means being a faithful congregation that goes together into the brokenness and the strife of the world around us. We're equipped with the spiritual fruit of love and peace and the spiritual gifts of wisdom and healing to make a difference in our broken world. And it means helping everyone, every man, every woman, teen, child, helping everyone to engage in the work of building God's kingdom. God is our master and we are his servants. He's given us work to do and he's equipped us to be able to do it. So let's saddle up our horses and do what he's called us to do. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the call and the challenge that you placed on our lives. Thank you that through your fruit and your gifts, through your person and the Holy Spirit, you have equipped us to follow you. And I pray that through it all, the glory and the praise would ever be for you. In your name, amen.